You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And I'm delighted today to be joined by a special guest. Joining me from Korea is uh, Andre Ibrahimian, a lecturer at George Mason University, Korea. Andre, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I believe uh, you've written for The Diplomat a few times, but I believe I've never had you on the show, and I'm glad uh, I'm rectifying that today. Um, so as listeners might imagine, Andre being in Korea and Korea being at the top of world headlines recently over uh, a variety of statements primarily coming out from the North Korean side, we are going to devote this episode to talking a bit about uh, inter-Korean relations, which I believe we haven't done on the show for a while, so it'll be a good time to revisit this uh, topic. And of course, we have a good peg, Andre, which is the uh, the 20th anniversary of the first ever inter-Korean summit way back in mm -hmm. 2000 between uh, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, and uh, Kim Dae-jung, uh, South Korean president. And um, yeah, so before we jump into the discussion, though, Andre, I always like to invite my guests to t tell our listeners a little bit about who they are, what their research interests are. So um, who are you and what do you exactly work on? Um, I... Um, the second Korea watching Andre uh, after Andre Lakov, the, the 2.0. Um, and I came to the peninsula in the early 2000s, having recently visited Vietnam and seen a country that was divided and visited that DMZ. And then after visiting the DMZ here, I was really, really struck by how this division was allowed to become so permanent and so enduring. Um, and that got me thinking about uh, doing a PhD in international relations, which I ended up doing here in South Korea, actually, um, focusing on kind of the nexus of media politics uh, and descriptions of, of North Korea. Uh, and then I got involved with Joseon Exchange, which is a NGO that uh, I helped set up in around 2010-11, uh, teaching North Koreans about business and economic policy. Uh, so that, that dragged me really to focus on social and economic change in North Korea for, uh, for a time. And how many trips uh, and, have you done to North yeah. Korea? Uh, 31 times. There we go. Okay. I'm pretty yeah. sure you're the best traveled person in North Korea that I've ever had on the podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Andre, I wanted to ask you a little bit because uh, obviously, uh, so, you know, uh, no secret for our listeners, but Andre and I uh, have run into each other a few times at Korea watching events here and there, including um, pre-pandemic in uh, Brussels. But uh, recently I saw on social media, Andre, that you were on a trip to uh, Yongpyongdo, which is um, a name that some listeners might recall from 2010 when it was at the center of a major skirmish, one of the most significant um, post-Cold War um, skirmishes between the two Koreas that uh, involved the North Korean artillery um, artillery units uh, shelling South Koreans, uh, including uh, killing a few civilians. So tell us a little bit about what you saw there. And uh, I think that's actually a good place to maybe segue into our discussion today. So I'd love to hear about your trip there. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's always really valuable to go to these places that are on the borders, even, even though there's an element of triteness to it, you know, peering across through binoculars at people living their daily lives feel feel a little bit invasive and and uh, cheesy um, nonetheless I always come away from a visit to the border whether it's the Chinese side or the South Korean side really struck by how how real and how cut off North Korea is I think often when we read the headlines and we look at the the news it's like this abstract problem but there's almost 25 million people living there 
very little understanding of how we live and we have very little understanding of how they live and on this particular trip um you know this island yongkyongdo is just a few hundred meters from north korean islands and just about a dozen or so kilometers from the the mainland of of the dprk and it's very militarized as you'd expect so there's these constant reminders that uh it is a tense area um there's barbed wires and uh artillery and and uh fortified beaches and all, all the kinds of things you'd expect to see in a, in a conflict area um that said it is very quiet there's only about two thousand people who live there um and it is very beautiful also um so you know those things stand in contrast to to one another to some extent yeah and um you know yongpyong though really brings us uh to the issue of uh, inter-korean tensions which is really the focus of our discussion today um so the past few days have been quite interesting in this regard i mean um i guess the place to start maybe is with Saturday's statement uh, made by uh, Kim Yo-jong, uh, who we now think is involved with the United Front Department in North Korea, but we don't actually know for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And um, Kim Yo-jong put out a statement, uh, and she's been putting out a lot of these statements on inter-Korean affairs lately, um, threatening to completely collapse the inter-Korean liaison office that was established in 2018 uh, when things were um, highly optimistic on the peninsula. Um, President Moon Jae-in of South Korea, of course, uh, led a major period of rapprochement with North Koreans acquiescing to that and initiating that actually before the Pyeongchang Olympic Games. Um, and I think that's led a lot of people to anticipate some kind of kinetic, uh, you know, to use the military jargon, it's a very sanitized mm-hmm. jargon, um, or some kind of actual provocation by the North. And um, that that was again followed up today by a, a statement um, similarly threatening steps. Uh, This was coming from the Korean People's Army's general staff, uh, so directly implicating the armed forces. Um, And of course, with the anniversaries, including the 70th anniversary of the start of the Korean War this month, and the first anniversary of the first ever inter-Korean summit, it's just an evocative time for these uh, tensions to really spike again. Um, So, Andre, I mean, how did we get from where we were in 2018 with the warm inter-Korean summitry, President Moon walking across the military demarcation line uh, to where we are now with uh, threats again being exchanged. Yeah, if I guess before we dive into some of the things that have happened in the last two years, I do think it's important to note that there's always a lot of guesswork that takes place when when we're trying to understand why North Korea is, ta- is taking some of the actions that it is, is taking. Um, as Graham Allison put it, in the essence of decision, an imaginative analyst can construct an account of value maximizing choice for any action taken by a government, especially when that analyst is prepared to ignore information or doesn't have all the facts at hand. So as we try to analyze North Korea, we never have all the facts at hand. We often really have no idea what the internal drivers of policy decisions are, what the political and bureaucratic wranglings are that drive these foreign policy decisions that they make. So I just want to note that at the very outset, because we'll probably go through a couple of hypotheses. You know, what do we think the North Koreans want? What do we think their strategy is? But at the end of the day, so much is obscured from us uh, in terms of their internal politics that there's always a very strong chance that we're wrong. Um, so I just kind of wanted to to note that 
uh, at the outset uh, before we dive no, I think, into. I think that's very responsible. <laughs> epistemic hedging. Gotta gotta <laughs> yeah. Yeah, gotta disclaim yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So um, overall, I think we can say that what they really really wanted from the Moon administration is some follow through on the big inter-Korean uh, cooperation projects that he talked about uh, during the, the summit two years ago at Panmunjom between Moon and Kim. Uh, at that summit, Moon Jae-in handed Kim Jong-un a USB uh, that had uh, almost certainly no viruses on it. What it definitely did have was plans for, for development uh, of North Korea in cooperation with the South. That was supposed to be the big inducement. Um, but one thing that the Moon administration has been very careful not to do is to annoy the United States by pushing the boundaries on sanctions. So they very carefully stayed on side of, of the US and international sanctions regime. And this has, this has frustrated the North Koreans. They, Pyongyang wants to see uh, Seoul push the boundaries a, a little bit more. I think that's sort of the fundamental dynamic uh, at play right now. I think that's a really good summation. And so I, we're not going to have time to go through every single thing that's happened in the last two years, of course. But I think you've done a terrific job of laying out kind of the starting point, right? And so let me let me bring up just a recent event that I think, um, again, you know, might be playing a role here, given all the epistemic hedging and disclaimers, of course. Um, so April, we had midterm elections in South Korea, President Moon um, looking quite dominant now politically. And that happens to coincide with now this subsequent increase in inter-Korean tensions coming from the North Korean side. So maybe maybe we can do a little bit of hypothesis testing and, you know, just talk through some of the things that might be driving things here. So one of the theories is that, you know, this is an attempt by the North Koreans to push the envelope or at least have Seoul push the envelope a little bit, given that President Moon does have the kind of political space that he now enjoys. What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that is that is possible. Um, but why, in that case, would you take such an aggressive approach, one that threatens to undermine the process of engagement or even the ethos of engagement, certainly in the eyes of the international community, right? So if, if you, as Pyongyang, are asking Moon to say to the United States, listen, we're going to go out on our own. You're not going to like it, but uh, this, is, this is what we want to try right now. Why would you make these demands on the, the balloon launches, the leaflet launches that we saw Kim Yo-jong uh, make last week and then um, force or at least push the South Koreans into complying in a way that I think really it caused some distress in the international community. Foreign observers definitely um, took a, a disliking, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, to right. how quickly the Moon administration uh, did what North Korea wanted on the leaflets. So, um, you know, why not try a more cooperative approach? You know, that's that's what I would ask for when faced with that hypothesis. Yeah, and so you know, we sh we should talk a bit about the leaflet issue, uh, especially for listeners that might not have been following the the lead up to the ongoing tensions. I mean, so the, so the leaflet issue is the proximal cause of the ongoing bout of inter-Korean tension that's been cited in uh, Kim Yo-jong's statements as the reason that the North Koreans are looking to take the actions that they've threatened. 
Um, and I think there's a degree, you know, I, I, I have no reason to doubt that it's not genuine. I mean, uh, in August 2015, for example, the landmine incident between the two Koreas was precipitated by uh, loudspeaker propaganda broadcast by the South Korean side. So the North Koreans are clearly quite sensitive to these kinds of incidents. Um, mm -hmm. But to interrogate that a little bit further, I mean, if you are dealing with a government or an administration like the Moon administration, that's really done, as you said, while remaining on side of uh, international sanctions and of the United States, tried to do almost everything it can within those bounds to foster inter-Korean cooperation. And you're looking to create a sense of urgency if you're North Korea. Maybe that's why you are pushing pushing the envelope a little bit and uh, and deciding that, you know, if if, uh, if honey doesn't catch flies, then maybe you're going to try a little bit of vinegar, of course, uh, you know. Um, yeah. Maybe you're not going to get yeah. the results you want, but uh, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here, but I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it seems po possible. It seems probable, even to me, that uh, previous talks uh, between North and South Korea have come on the back of a crisis, right? And so uh, you have to amplify things in order to create the justification for, say, high-level negotiations that politically are not justified unless something serious is taking place. Um, so I would guess that that's what the North Koreans are looking to do right now. Um, that said, you know, it, it just, it seems so, so manufactured from our perspective, right? Particularly the way last week, Kim Yo-jung said the leaflets, you know, disgusting affront to our, uh, the supreme dignity of our leadership and some insults about defectors. And then the next day, Seoul moves into action and starts taking steps to right. ban the sending of leaflets. And then a few days later, Pyongyang is still making statements about the leaflets as if none of that had taken place in, in South Korea. So that to me made it look as if there was some kind of script or playbook that they were that they were following that, that didn't that no longer matched um, the reality on the ground because basically now sending these propaganda leaflets from uh, south to North Korea is banned. That's that's a development that's happened in the past week, and uh, Seoul is using a couple of different pretexts. One is uh, maritime uh, pollution law, and um, another uh, aviation law that. That, that they're using to say that you can no longer send these leaflets northward. Um, so, you know, um, there's also a degree of speculation that that the North Koreans don't want a crisis with the U.S. and particularly with with China and Russia at the moment to spark talks. So, an ICBM or certainly a nuke test yeah. um, would create too much stress for them at the moment. So, the, then the logical choice is to provoke some kind of issue with South Koreans that's a little more localized and a little more contained. But again, you know, we that's where we start wandering into speculation, I think. Yeah, no, and, you know, speaking of wandering into speculation, I think the most speculative of the explanatory hypotheses is ones pertaining to Kim Yo-jong herself. Of course, she's been a topic of fascination ever since she first, uh, I believe, was uh, seen lingering behind that pillar all those years ago. While her brother gave a speech, and now she's uh, delivering grand pronouncements on on behalf, uh, and you know she specifically invoked that she had the authorization of the supreme leadership in her messaging, and 
one of the one of the ideas that's been floated is that this is an attempt, uh, like perhaps uh, the Chonan sinking and Yongpyong though were in 2010 to set mm-hmm. up for Kim Jong Un's legitimacy as a uh, military commander. Uh, that this is an attempt to do the same for his sister, and of course his sister was unprecedentedly seen last year attending missile tests alongside Kim Jong-un. And at the time, yeah. I sort of had a feeling in the pit of my stomach that this did not bode well. Um, mm. And of course, I think this is totally speculative. I mean, we don't have anything to really support that this is what's happening inside. And it is it is intriguing, though, right. to ponder. Right. But and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, that's the reason I, I tried to put that little uh, pin, <laughs> pin in the beginning, that the caveat at the beginning is because to me, that that makes uh, a ton of sense. Um, you have her uh, being very present during the the period of rapprochement in 2018. You know, she was in the Blue House. You know, Kim Kim Il Sung's granddaughter in in the presidential house in South Korea. You know, extremely traumatic uh, imagery connected to reconciliation and dialogue. And so she was a part of that. Um, now, if they're setting her up to be in the leadership for the long term, you know, they have an opportunity to put her out front of a period of tensions and being and projecting toughness um, against their old enemy in South Korea. And so that makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, more than the idea that they're trying to create a mini crisis to get concessions or um or any of the other sort of strategic hypotheses that we we might run through, but we we don't we don't know, um, and so uh, I think it's always important to emphasize how little we know as we as we guess what is going on with elite politics in uh, in North Korea. Yep, and you know we're having this conversation just a couple months after the entire world went haywire with uh, rumors about uh, Kim Jong Un's health. So it's certainly something that uh, I think. Um, fascinates people, right? I mean, understanding how the leadership dynamics here play out. Um, and I think uh, Kim Yo-jong in particular, I think, has been a figure that's really drawn a lot of uh, curiosity um, yeah. in, in South Korea and the United States. Um, just this idea of um, her being, I think, one of the most prominent, first of all, young females that we've seen in North Korea take the kind of leadership role that she, ha- that she has. And as you noted, you know, I think um, her being the first descendant of the Pektu bloodline to go south of the demilitarized zone since the mm-hmm. end of the Korean War, quite a, I think set her up to play an important role in the ongoing events. But again, there's a lot yeah, that's misunderstood. Yeah, and there was considerable debate, debate uh, amongst my friends and colleagues about the relative value of her being part of the Bekdu bloodline, that, that Kim family, uh, versus being a young female. You know, how, how do those stack up against each other in terms of... Um, inserting her into the the leadership uh, group in North Korea. It's, again, an an open question. Right, yeah. I think think, uh, Anna Fifield in her book on Kim Jong-un, I think, um, talks a bit about that and basically, I think, concludes that uh, her her gender is a large liability uh, in uh, building credibility with the military graybeards, especially. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is. But then, of course... uh, Kim Jong-il's youth and military inexperience, and then, of course, Kim Jong-un's extreme youth when he came came to power should have been liabilities, too. So, you know, it's worth noting that this is a country that does tend to surprise. Um, they, they pull things off that, that mm-hmm. by all rights, they shouldn't be able to. Um, yeah. All right. So zooming out a little bit, um, we, had a, we had another anniversary 
um, last week, a little bit less uh, notable, I guess, in, in some ways. But, uh, you know, we had the uh, the second anniversary of the June 12, 2018 Singapore summit. I'm um, being a little glib. I mean, mm-hmm. OK, first first ever meeting between a sitting U.S. president and a North Korean leader. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, North Korean foreign minister um, Ri song Gwon put out a rather acerbic statement on uh, what had been done since then and what how the North Koreans viewed the United States uh, upholding of its commitments uh, per as per the Singapore Declaration. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the U.S.-North Korea situation right now because I, I do want to focus on inter-Korean relations. But I mean, mm-hmm. is there one of the hypotheses we haven't really talked about is is you know, a lot of, I think, Korea analysis, uh, analysis by Americans tends to over-center the role of the United States on the peninsula. Um, but mm-hmm. at the risk of doing that, I mean, let me ask you, is is any of what's happening right now in a way either about the United States or is it an attempt to, again, try to catalyze the South Korean leadership to talk to the United States in a way that might benefit North Korea? Yeah, I think, I think you alluded to it before or we did, you know, this this could in part be uh, about trying to create a wedge between South Korea and the United States and and probing to see if Seoul is willing to make a bit more of a break with the U.S. Uh, during a time when, again, as you noted, uh, Moon Jae-in's party has a supermajority um, in, in parliament. And while the U.S. is grappling with the overlapping now crises of COVID-19, and um, the, the protests uh, connected to Black Lives Matter. Um, the U.S. doesn't have a ton of bandwidth, I think, in the administration to deal with, with Korea right now. So it would seem like a good moment for North Korea to try and test and see what the South Koreans are willing to do. That said, I, I just I'm not sure that, you know, this is the way to go about that. Um, in general, I guess when it comes to the U.S. and North Korea, they're kind of overlapping solipsisms maybe at play where the U.S., we tend to think everything's about us, and in North Korea, they tend to think everything is about them. Um, and overall, in North Korea, political and policy decisions, they start at the local and expand outward. Um, so they, they have to think the most about what's going on internally. And then after that, China, South Korea, and, and, and then the U.S. probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that, that what's going on right now is is connected to the U.S. directly, although obviously um, given that sanctions are the current main fetter on inter-Korean cooperation, um, it's connected through the, the... I think the mutual desire in both Seoul and Pyongyang to go beyond the sanctions regime in some some way. That desire is obviously more intense in the North than in the South. Yes, I think, I think it's fair to say that the U.S. is very much involved in creating the structural conditions that prevent further inter-Korean cooperation, but probably not directly involved in uh, creating the proximal conditions for the current bout of uh, tensions that we're seeing. Um, so so yeah. we, are, we are running a little short on time, but I, I wanted to also get your thoughts on, you know, what really can South Korea do from here? I, I I thought your remarks, by the way, on the leaflet drops were right on. I mean, it kind of looked like the North Koreans said jump and they didn't expect the South Koreans to jump. But then the South Koreans yeah. not only jumped, but yeah. they began doing jumping jacks. Um, and yeah. uh, they, it sort of caught them off guard. But you know, the, the point is, I mean, wh- what can the South Korean side do? I mean, they tried to play ball, but the North Korean playbook, if it exists, 
is uh, is rolling forward and they have their mindset on provocation. So is there even something Seoul can do realistically? Yeah, I mean, Seoul's in a difficult position now and has been ever since the collapse of the Hanoi Hanoi summit. I think I think Moon Jae-in was kind of a, a diplomatic genius foreign policy wizard during his first year and a half where first he navigated the fad crisis and then these tensions heaped uh heaped upon Seoul by North Korea's missile and nuclear tests in 2017 and then you know um fire and fury and all that from from the US side he did I thought he did a tremendous job of staying relevant to all sides building up this political capital and then spending it to help get the US and North Korea to the table first in Singapore but then especially in Hanoi and then when that collapsed you know that political capital collapse with it and now he he doesn't really have much he can offer or leverage in either washington or pyongyang so uh i i I feel bad for them here really they they're kind of at the mercy of these two you know mercurial governance (laughs) systems um and uh, I wonder, actually, in the past week, because of how quickly they moved on the leaflets, if perhaps one of two things might be at play. Maybe they have like a soft agreement with the North Koreans to do something and uh, something that would be politically popular here, whether it's reunions or some other um, some other cooperative project that they don't want to give the North Koreans a pretext to pull out of. Um, that that's one possibility. Other possibility is that maybe they had some intelligence that uh, the North Koreans were moving towards a, a provocation, something kinetic, to use that risible phrase again, uh, and they were trying to cut it off before uh, the North Koreans uh, allowed their process of tension building to develop. Um, yeah, those, so those are a couple of possibilities right now. Overall, though, as I mentioned, they're they're really stuck stuck between Washington and, and Pyongyang, who uh, don't seem to have anything new to to say to one another to create the conditions uh, that would allow inter-Korean projects to take place. Yeah, I mean, you know, it seems listening to you talk and like reflecting on the twentieth anniversary of the first inter-Korean summit. I mean, one of the tragedies of this triangle has always been. Um, the relative lack of Seoul and, or I guess the relative lack of agreement in Seoul and Washington on a strategic level about how best to treat North Korea, right? I mean, progressives right. in Seoul have often felt very lonely. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's very much been the case with uh, Moon Jae-in and Trump. I mean, more so than ever, really. Um, and so that's uh, really the the tragedy here at the, at the end of the day is that there's all yeah. this will on the Korean peninsula and there's all this uh, interest in... Um, self-determining the future of the peninsula but um structural conditions make that impossible yeah and at the end of the day you know peace building in any context where there's multiple interests and and groups uh involved it takes a bit of luck right it takes the alignment of particular individuals who are willing to take risks and it seemed for a minute maybe that that we had the three the, the right three people um, working at the same time in Trump, Moon, and and Kim, um, but 
so, so that was frustrating to see the contours of what um, a deal that would change the dynamic on the peninsula might look like um, for me, uh, and then see it slip away. And, and now, you know, you have to wonder if the next opportunity is going to be several, several years away, because I think the collapse of Hanoi really, for Kim Jong-un, most of all, falsified the process of engagement in the eyes of his key stakeholders. So he went back from Hanoi and basically, I think, has been unable to sell the idea of talking to or trying to cooperate with the Americans or the, the, the South Koreans. So I think it'll be some time before um, that idea is able to gain traction again in Pyongyang. Right. Uh, well, um, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is very unfortunate. Um, absolutely. Um, Andre, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to come talk about some of these things today. It's, uh, it's, it, I think it was a really helpful uh, distillation of some of the context in which we can understand what's happening right now on the peninsula. So uh, really, thanks a lot for taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was very, very enjoyable. My pleasure. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.